I would say that 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 I don't take the the tremendous honor and privilege of getting to teach um, and learn um, and live and love in ethnic studies for granted. Right now, there are 120 students enrolled in ethnic studies and education, the most we've ever had at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher in the Los Angeles area. This is my 17th year in the classroom, and this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Jeff, guess what? Uh... I don't know. You got to guess, man. You got to guess. I got some good news, uh, man. I got I'm, some good I'm, news I'm about gonna our keep show, it man. Real. I'm going to keep it real 1980s on you, man, and say chicken butt. <laughs> I was hoping you would say that because that always is, is an acceptable answer. But yes. now, nah, man, we have crossed the, the threshold of 500 YouTube subscribers. Mm, 500, right. man. I remember when we were struggling to get that first like 20, 25, trying to get to 100. And here we are with over 500 YouTube subscribers. So we want to shout all of you out, all of you who are watching us on YouTube. Big shout out to you. Thank you for, for being part of this journey with us. And those of you who are listening on the go, we appreciate you. Um, we definitely, definitely, definitely want to encourage you to, you know, if you enjoy what you hear and enjoy these conversations that we have on the show, uh, we want to encourage you to go ahead and, and give us that five-star review. It will go a long way towards helping us expand the show and get out to new new listeners all right so um yeah man jeff i'm feeling good about crossing that 500 and i know this episode right here is going to be a dope one because i mean for one they're all dope but um we just had a a, a fantastic episode with dr goldie muhammad and i mean we've just been really on a streak with just real heavy hitters in the world of education um really dope transformative folks and I'm, I'm willing to bet that we probably have another super dope guest today. So, Jeff, can you tell us what is on today's agenda? Well, Manuel, you would be correct. Um, our streak is alive and well, nothing but the dopest of the dope guests uh, joining us here on All the Above. And today we have someone who, I, you know, on a personal level, I'm very excited about. I think she's a fascinating uh, personality, fascinating figure in education, and also someone that, that you and I have a, you know, a little bit of a connection with um, because she is currently the director of the teacher education program at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, which is, of course, the uh, alma mater of, of the two of us. Um, so, you know, it's even, a, you know, in some ways, a little bit of a reunion to, you know, <laughs> circle back, yeah. go, you know, approaching 20 years later um, to, Ooh, uh, man, to Jeff, you're old. <laughs> yeah, right. I think I think there's a we uh, that you meant <laughs> to put at the front of that statement, Manuel. Um, but we have none other than uh, Dr. Christina Villarreal. You may know her as V or Dr. V. And uh, in addition to being the director of the teacher ed program at Harvard, she is also uh, an educator with a long history as a social studies teacher um, coming out of Oakland. She, as a professor, teaches ethnic studies to educators. And so we're going to yeah. kind of dig into these issues around what the role of ethnic studies is 
in preparing the next generation of educators, um, both classroom teachers and also folks who, who work in other aspects of education or who are preparing to be school leaders. So um, it's going to be a real fascinating conversation, and uh, you definitely don't want to miss it. Dope. Harvard in the house. That's that's how yes. you gotta say it. Harvard. You got you got you gotta put the pinky out when you say it, man. <laughs> Harvard, yes. All right, folks. Uh, but up first, of course, we're gonna take a look at recent headlines in the world of education in a segment that we call the Do Now. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks for watching All the Above. We really appreciate you and we need your help. We're trying to get the word out about All the Above to everyone. Here's what you can do. Go to aotashow.com, that's our website. All the links to all of our content is there. You can share our stuff on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. Send the links to friends, colleagues, educators you know who could benefit from this type of show. Help us spread the word about All the Above. Thanks, enjoy the show. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at some recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, we today are going to be taking some attendance. We're going to see who's in the house here with us on all the above today. So we got yeah. a roll call. Roll call. All right, all right. Let's see who's in the house for today's episode. All right, Jeff. First name on the attendance is um, Butte County. Interesting. Not a name that you hear, you know, on a regular basis. You know, people in California hear about like Orange County and L.A. County and that kind of thing. Right. So uh, Butte County, I know it's just like it's in the sticks, man. That's that's all I know. <laughs> it's deep <laughs> in the sticks, deep in the yes. woods, uh, <laughs> up, up north somewhere. Pardon. Pardon my geographical ignorance about the counties of California. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I suppose anything north of Sacramento, I guess, could be considered more or less in the sticks um, <laughs> to, to be ge geographically um, accurate, I suppose. All right. So Butte County is is in our report today because um, Butte County was identified as as one of several counties in California that are currently experiencing um, a, a, a really high and unfortunate and really shocking um, level of, of homelessness amongst its student population. All right, and this is according to a new report out of UCLA. So let's get, let's get into the details. So this new research compiled by UCLA's Center for the Transformation of Schools shows that the number of students across California who are currently experiencing homelessness has risen by nearly 50% in the last decade. Now this data specifically looks at the 2018 to 2019 school year. And during that time, 269,000 K-12 students experienced homelessness. In higher ed, one in five community college students, one in 10 Cal State University students, and one in 20 University of California students experienced homelessness during that school year. These numbers are likely higher today, of course, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the authors of this report, which is called State of Crisis, Dismantling Student Homelessness in California, also included um, a list of supports that uh, districts could consider in order to help students who might be um, experiencing homelessness. So, Jeff, what do you what do you think about these new these new numbers? It's really, really, um, 
really shocking, I think. It is shocking. It is alarming. Um, it is concerning. I, you know, whatever adjective that says, like, what the hell is going on, uh, it is that, right? Um, here we are in the United States of America, uh, the wealthiest uh, country, most well-resourced country in the world. Here we are in California, the largest, most populous, and, uh, you know, and most wealthy state in that country. Uh, and yet we have a booming crisis of students experiencing homelessness, um, you know, not only, of course, in our K-12 schools, but in, uh, you know, our students who are in college, right? So, you know, this is, this is just, it's crazy, right? And I think, uh, Manuel, that there are, and you know, I'm glad this piece was produced. I'm glad they have some suggestions about what's, what schools can do to serve the needs uh, of students who are experiencing homelessness. But I'm gonna actually take a slightly different angle on this story because I think in as much as it's important that we have this data and we do think about what schools can do, I think honestly we ask schools to do too much. And this is a perfect encapsulation of one of the ways in which we ask schools to just do things that like aren't or shouldn't at least be the, the kind of purview of a school, of an educational institution, right? As a society, why do we have so many people who are experiencing homelessness? And it's not the job of schools to fix that problem, right? So I'm, I'm gonna share with folks here, there, there was a definition of homelessness uh, that this study used, right? And it included things like um, kids who are, uh, or uh, sharing housing um, with, with people due to a loss of housing or economic hardship. Um, folks living in motels, hotels, trailer parks, shelters, um, folks who have a primary nighttime residence that is not a place where people no, uh, normally usually sleep, people living in cars, parks, public spaces, abandoned buildings, um, train stations, etc., and migratory children who qualify as homeless because they are children who are living in, uh, you know, in similar circumstances. Now, those are conditions, economic conditions for kids and families and for college students that should not be allowed to exist in the wealthiest country in the world. So I know that in our country, because of federal legislation and things, we, we put on schools the work of helping to address this problem, but it is fundamentally not the work of school to fix homelessness. It is the work of society. It's the work of legislatures, of executives, uh, you know, governors and presidents to fix homelessness. Um, banks even, you know, <laughs> need to play a role here. So I'm outraged, I'm shocked, and I'm like, schools, this is not a school problem. It becomes a school problem because we've made it that way. But schools are not in the business of making sure everybody has a house to live in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I, I certainly agree with all of that. And as a teacher, I mean, it's, it's an important reminder to me that you never quite know what which of your students might be unhoused or might be um, really experiencing um, a, a living situation in which like they don't know where they're gonna go to sleep that night or they're sleeping on the couch of a friend's home because their family got displaced from their own apartment or their own home. And um, you know, it's, it's, it's an important reminder that as a teacher, you never quite know what your students are going through. And the report includes several suggestions for how schools and districts can um, try to help students who, who might be experiencing homelessness. And some of those suggestions are things that, you know, as a teacher, I know 
I'm supposed to do all the time, but it's like even more important to think about it now during this pandemic. And you know, some of those suggestions included um, differentiated and, and flexible instruction. And to me, this reminds me of the sort of ongoing discussion that I've, I've seen among teachers about whether or not cameras should be on or off during distance learning. Like this is a reminder, like, please do not require your students to turn their cameras on because you do not know what situation they're in and they don't necessarily want all their classmates to see that and to know that. Um, the report also mentions that there needs to be greater coordination between schools and, and, and local services, county services and, and social work services and, and, and all of that because, um, you know, to your point, Jeff, it, it's not just, it's not up to schools to solve homelessness for sure. And um, we definitely want to do the best that we can to support students. But we, you know, we, it's, it, the school cannot do it alone for sure. So the, the report definitely recommends more coordination between various services. Wow. The report also reminds us to create safe and supportive learning environments that allow students to, to feel supported and allow for creative, flexible interactions that might not necessarily require um, a live face-to-face -face in all cases. And of course, during this pandemic, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of students, even though we definitely don't want to rush students back to school because of obviously the, the challenge in doing that and the, the lack of safety precautions that most schools have right now, um, but still for a, lot of, for a lot of students, school, school was a, a bit of stability for them. And without them showing up to school each day, you know, it's even harder to make sure that each student is is doing okay. All right. So for me, this is a reminder that I got to do above and beyond just teaching my content. I definitely can't demand students to, to meet with me at a, a set time and have their camera on and follow these rules and get this in by this deadline because I don't know what students are going through. Butte County, this is not an area, you know, that's one of the counties identified in the report. Butte County is not what folks what I would think about when I think about high levels of, of unhoused kids, I would, you know, assume like big cities because you hear about San Francisco and, and Los Angeles and just crazy housing costs. Butte County isn't one of the areas that you would commonly associate with those sorts of issues. So this goes above and beyond, I think, just the the um, general discussion that we've had about homelessness. I think this is really a moment to stop and reflect and really think as a teacher how are you supporting students who you may or may not realize are sleeping in a car each night? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'm really glad you, you said that, Manuel, because, you know, I, I don't want my previous comments to be misconstrued to, to say that, like, well, you know, because homelessness is a problem where the solution lies outside of school, uh, that therefore school has no role and responsibility to help support students who are who are experiencing homelessness. And I, you know, I definitely agree with that. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, I just think we also honestly, I think as educators need to push back a little bit, frankly, because, you know, we, we have like uh, the McKinney Vento federal legislation is, is you know, is probably the, the biggest, um, you know, uh, piece of legislation that kind of governs how schools track and interact and support with, um, you know, students who are who are experiencing homelessness. But the reality is, like, we should push back and say, look, we have a problem with folks who are homeless. The problem is not those people. And the problem is not school isn't doing enough. The problem is that housing is too expensive. The problem is that we have people struggling with chemical dependency and not enough you know, supports and services. The problem is banks are doing predatory things, right? Like put, yep. we need to put our societal energy at addressing the causes 
of homelessness so that students don't come to school experiencing homelessness, right? Like that should be taken off the plate as an issue that educators have to deal with. We have enough to deal with, right? With students' learning needs, with students' social emotional needs, with students' developmental you know, needs, right? With uh, English right. learners and students who have IEPs and all kinds of things that are definitely the purview of school, right? We, we don't need society heaping more on the table. So I'm glad we have this data. Let's get to work on solutions and let's stop asking schools to be a Band-Aid on massive social problems that aren't rooted in school. Yeah. All of that. And for sure, even though this report focuses on California, this is definitely not a problem that's unique to California. And I know California gets dumped on a lot in, in conservative media um, as some sort of wasteland, which it obviously is not. Um, <laughs> An there, anarchist this, this district is, above is and beyond the term you're looking just, for. <laughs> yeah. Just, um, and also, it, it, you know, I want to point our, our viewers, our listeners to previous episodes that we've had where this issue has has come up some. One was the episode about supporting our LGBTQ plus youth. And there's definitely a lot of students who um, more or less are, are, are disowned or um, marginalized from their own families because of their sexual orientation. And some of those, uh, many of those end up unhoused. And we also had an episode about supporting our foster youth. Uh, a lot of foster youth, um, you know, when they age out of the system or because of the particular circumstances of their placements, a lot of foster youth um, fi find themselves in a position where they are unhoused and they experience homelessness. So we had some pretty dope guests talking about those issues for sure. And also, you know, it, the story lastly reminds me of, of a student that I had who went off to college and um, for matters pertaining to their that student's own family circumstance, that student ended up not able to live with their family anymore. And that student during that transition from high school to, to college was, was staying with a friend. And, and thankfully the college that the student ended up at had all these services for, uh, for students who were unhoused. So um, I definitely, you know, I don't think all colleges have that, but I definitely think that we gotta, at the higher ed level, make sure that we are fully investing um, resources into student housing and helping students out who might not have families to go home to during those, those breaks where folks aren't supposed to be living in the dorms anymore. So yeah, yeah. All right. Sad stuff, Jeff. Let's get a uplifting story. All right. What's, what's next on the roll call? <laughs> oh, man. Well, you always do this to me, man. <laughs> what? Ask for uplifting uh, news? I mean, come on now. Like, yeah. How difficult can that be? It's 2020. There's, there's got to be plenty of great stories out there. <laughs> It's 2020. There has not been uplifting news in the five years that have taken place since January of 2020. <laughs> so, uh, so our our next roll call, Manuel. Just to just to you know, it, you know, this is uplifting depending on how you look at it, like in a tragic, horrible, evil kind of way. Uh, our next roll call for you, Manuel, just for you, is Candace Owens. Whoa, 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 Jeff. We, we don't need to say that name on the show, man. We, we just crossed 500 YouTube subscribers, and uh -huh. that's a name, man, that I don't, I don't want the algorithms to pick up that name because then we're going to get a lot of conservative trolls landing on this video, and we'll get all those thumbs downs and, and trolling in the comments. Yeah, let's, let's, let's avoid that name if we can. 
please, Jeff. Yeah, Although too, not everybody too knows too who that is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not everyone does know who that is. And if you if you don't, then bless you. I mean, what a wonderful existence that must be. <laughs> she is, you know, she's the uh, <laughs> she's the female Uncle Tom in chief, I guess you might say. Um, I, I don't know what I don't know what the woman equivalent of an Uncle Tom is. But this, but it's a Candace Owens. So, uh, <laughs> so here we go. Um, this story comes to us by some good reporting by Rebecca Klein uh, in the Huffington Post about an Ohio public school that has been giving students extra credit for watching videos from the right-wing website PragerU, which produces content discussing conservative viewpoints. A 10th grade history class at Maumee High School was assigned to watch a series of PragerU videos and answer questions about the video's, uh, quote, most important messages. These PragerU videos had titles such as Build the Wall, Why the Right Was Right, and The Left Ruins Everything. The teacher's class website shows that she also assigned these videos last year. Now, PragerU has been trying to gain further influence in K-12 classrooms. Uh, last month, the organization launched an online learning program directly aimed at parents and educators, uh, complete with study guides and sections such as Conservatives are the Real Environmentalists and the Ferguson Lie. Um, this particular Ohio homework assignment appeared unrelated to PragerU's latest venture, um, which, of course, is called uh, PREP. PragerU uh, Resources for Educators and Parents, uh, which launched several weeks ago. Now, um, PragerU has a number of uh, well-known right-wing personalities uh, who are behind its content, Candace Owens, of course, being one of them, but there's other names you may know, like Ben Shapiro and Adam Carolla, and, um, oh, now I'm forgetting his name. I think his name is Bob, Bob Rowe, um, the guy from the Dirty Jobs TV show. Um, so there are some pretty well-known personalities there um, uh, who will participate in producing this content. It's a very clear attempt to, you know, spread influence in our K-12 schools. Manuel, what do you have to say about this? Well, all right, so plenty, but we'll just start with the fact that if anybody's not familiar, um, these are big-time conservative, I guess you could say talking heads, um, which is obviously a, a very common content format. And Miss um, Owens, she gained some notoriety over the summer for um, producing a video about George Floyd, about the person George Floyd, and basically how he wasn't a great person, and um, this is all overblown. And that video was the most watched video on Facebook for um, a, a significant period of time. So just slamming this man who was just brutally murdered in front of our own eyes. That's the type of type of stuff you get from, from these right-wing talking heads. And I, I wish we could all agree that that sort of material has no place in the K-12 classroom. Now PragerU, that's a, a misleading name. It's not, it's not a university. I mean, the U stands for university, but it's not a university. So anybody out there that's you know, visualizing some sort of like, you know, conservative school somewhere. It's not a school. It's just a website that produces videos um, and content. And I'm sure, I'm sure, and, and you know, this is where I, I worry, Jeff. I'm sure there are many people out there, educators included, who are wondering how is this any different from having the 1619 Project as curriculum? Or how is this any different from a teacher wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt? My fear is that we will both sides this 
to the point where mm -hmm. all curriculum is accepted in some kind of way because it's just an alternative view on the stuff that the folks on the left are bringing in. And it's not that, like these are not two of the same thing. I mean, you know, going all the way back to the president's comments after Charlottesville and, you know, um, wonderful people on both sides or whatever he said, this, this both sides stuff is, is really, really, really dangerous because there, there aren't both sides of an issue when it comes to humanization, when it comes to uplifting folks who have been marginalized and oppressed for, for centuries. And this teacher, I don't, you know, I don't know the specifics about this teacher and this teacher's curriculum choice. You know, at first I was kind of like, well, maybe it's part of an assignment where they were supposed to interrogate these videos and point out the different uh, propaganda elements of the video. But based on the article by Rebecca Klein and shout out Rebecca Klein, it sounds like it was more of a, you know, watch these videos and 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 write about the the uh, central messages of these videos as if it's uh, as if these messages are are okay or or sound in any kind of way. So, I'm really worried that as curriculum becomes more of a focus for families across the nation um in part because of distance learning and more families being able to see and hear curriculum more than ever before and in part because of these attacks from um, the president and others on certain curriculum, I feel like curriculum is becoming so politicized. I mean, it's obviously always been political. I mean, the decision of what to include and what not to include has always been political, but I feel like the level of partisanship around deciding what curriculum um, belongs in schools, I feel like we've reached a, a new peak in that debate. And I'm really worried that educators out there or, you know, if they see an educator using the 1619 Project, there's probably another educator thinking like, well, I choose to use PragerU content and it's on the same level. It's just a different lens or different perspective. Yeah. It's so much more than just a different lens issue. I don't know. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like push it even a step further, Manuel, because, well, first of all, actually, let me correct what I said earlier. The, the, the guy from the Dirty Jobs TV show, his name is Mike Rowe. So sorry for my misstatement. And of course, they also include among their ranks uh, America's favorite racist in a bow tie, none other than Tucker Carlson. So, uh, Manuel, I think the issue here is not only that they're going to both sides, they're like, well, we have the 1619 Project, and that's like liberal communist propaganda, so we have patriotic propaganda or whatever ridiculous name they're gonna give it. Um, I think there's a 100% guarantee that they're gonna attempt that, right? right? Um, and that they're gonna go even further to push out of the curriculum and push out of discourse in schools um, things like critical, you know, uh, content and and teaching that is rooted in critical race theory, right, or in really in the kind of moral philosophy and principles of social justice, right, for uh, for one that is rooted in this so, so just pure mythology of American exceptionalism and white supremacy, and you know the reality is that's what these folks are up to, right now as a social studies teacher. I don't actually have a problem with using propaganda from any perspective, from right wing or left wing or you know centrist, whatever perspective, as a tool for instruction. Right now, there's a very clear, uh, ethical, responsible manner in which propaganda needs to be used and needs to be presented 
to students so that they can consider it critically, so that you're not just giving them content that in effect is propagandizing and potentially radicalizing them, right, um, to any particular viewpoint. But using it as an artifact of like, here's one perspective and, you know, we need to understand it in the context of history and facts, right? Um, I don't have a problem with, but that's not what these folks are trying to do, right? Like these folks are trying to shift the curriculum to be their right-wing propaganda, to tell, you know, just straight up, in some cases, lies, um, or to advance their, their political position. And I think at the end of the day, I've said this a bunch of times on the show, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep saying it over time, and well, there is something about the fundamental values of school that is rooted in some type of social justice, right? They're like, everyone here should be treated equally. Everyone should have equal opportunity and access to learning. Everyone should be supported and welcomed, no matter what your identity is or no matter what group you come from in society that you know may be marginalized. You have a home and you have a right to safe space in our institutions of public education. And the, the fact of the matter is the philosophy that these folks are pushing doesn't believe that, right? Like it's just at odds with, with that basic principle, right? It's rooted in patriarchy, it's rooted in white supremacy, and th those are oppressive constructs. So there is something, you know, if you wanna debate libertarian economic policy and you think that's going to, you know, to actually produce better societal outcomes for everyone, like we can have that conversation. But if your issue is to build a wall Right and denigrate, uh, you know, Latinx immigrants. Right, uh, like that's just racist. Right, <laughs> like, and we can't support that as you know as a a good thing in school. Yeah, you know something that our guest um, last episode, Dr. Goldie Muhammad, said in in that discussion is that you know this isn't a political agenda. This is a human agenda to yes. to center and yes. uplift um, folks. You know, especially Black and Brown students, especially folks from marginalized backgrounds. And you know that's that's a fear that I have is that this is all just going to be thrown into a giant category of political curriculum, and some districts, in order to avoid any controversy at all, might just say like all of it is out. Sixteen nineteen is out, and PragerU is out. There, there we're being fair and neutral. We're just throwing it all out. When again, it's yeah. not it's not an equal matter on on you know it's not just not a, a matter of two different perspectives on on something that's that's arguable. It's not that at all. Um, but we might end up equating them the same just to avoid the controversy or to, yeah, for all that. Um, but also it, it just reminds me that as a teacher, I have to be really careful. Like I have to be really careful in, in how I connect students to content. And the reason I say that is because, you know, maybe this, this, maybe this teacher, I don't know, maybe this teacher was just trying to figure out an assignment and thought it'd be cool and interactive for students to view these videos and write about these videos. And maybe that teacher's own um, own independent bias made it so that this teacher didn't realize just how politicized these videos are. That's a giant problem. That's a giant problem. In fact, we'll talk about that um, with our guest today, uh, Christina Villarreal, about ethnic studies and, and how it can help us see past these biases and, and see through white supremacy. But in any case, you know, maybe the teacher thought like, oh, the, you know, video assignment, students could watch these videos and write some stuff. And as a teacher, I have to be really careful because, you know, the world is changing very quickly in terms of access to content. And one assignment that I had earlier earlier this year, um, I was trying to connect some enlightenment texts that we that students read, um, Rousseau and John Locke and, you know, social contract theory 
with uh, current modern day protests for racial justice. And, you know, Trevor Noah had had, had a, a, a really widely um, distributed video over the summer about the social contract and and his views of, of folks who were who are out there protesting. And I wanted to include a series of videos. And this was around the time where Kirk Herbstreet, who's a, a big time college football analyst guy, um, you know, he cried on air in discussing the the events of the summer. And, you know, it's a college football show. And here's a college football commentator discussing the events of the summer, the uh, uprising for social justice and crying tears in his his realization of just how much pain there is out there. And this is a guy who had previously criticized Colin Kaepernick in, in this and that. So this, you know, for him, perhaps, perhaps it was a bit of growth. I don't know. Um, so in any case, I wanted students to, to watch that clip as well. There's a series of clips that are put together, just varying degrees of, of reaction to the summer's protests. And in searching for that clip, because I saw it on, on Twitter and Twitter's blocked on most of our student devices. So I wanted to find it on YouTube, which is not blocked. And I just typed in his name, simple Kirk Herbstreet. And I did it in a, a separate browser, um, not logged in because I like to keep my own YouTube algorithm clear of like school stuff. Um, so this was just a, you know, not logged in, separate incognito browser so that hopefully, you know, no cookies or nothing would influence the search results. And one of the results, so there was like 12 or so uh, immediate results. One of them was the actual video of Kirk Herbstreet um, and, you know, it was posted on ESPN's YouTube channel. And all of the other videos, all of them were political reactions to his video and they were all right-wing political reactions. So, and most of them were by black conservatives, not uh, Candace Owens herself, but uh, folks within that realm. And it was, you know, titles like, oh, Kirk Herbstreet cries, fake tears over fake black oppression. Uh, Kirk Herbstreit's crying woke tears. And they were just totally just trying to emasculate him. It was just total garbage, total trash. And I thought to myself, man, I'm glad I didn't tell students just to go find that video, look it up and write about it. Because man, I would have led them right into this rabbit hole of right-wing toxic, toxic stuff. But yeah, all right, so that's it for today's stories. And you know, we're gonna have a, a guest on today who's gonna bring some some joy and and help lift us because those two stories are, are you know, eh, a little bit kind of downers, kind of downers, all right? So today's guest, uh, Dr. V, um, you know, she's just, her, her passion for students and her passion for, for fighting the good fight is um, so inspiring. So I'm definitely looking forward to that seminar. That's up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are thrilled to have you here with us today. And I am super excited because we have an amazing guest who's going to help us uh, unpack some really interesting issues in our profession. Now, in recent episodes, we have been discussing issues of anti-racism in different content areas across the curriculum. So we've talked about science, we've talked about English, we've talked about math, and today, uh, on just a personal level, uh, we are happy to have with us a social studies teacher um, who teaches ethnic studies to graduate students, to students who are going to become the next generation of teachers. And we're gonna be talking with her about the work of anti-racism as it applies in the higher ed context and as it applies to teacher education programs. So I wanna to welcome to all the above, Dr. Christina Villarreal. Um, she goes by V or Dr. V. Uh, welcome to all the above. 
Hello. Nice to see everybody. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, let me tell you folks a little bit about uh, Dr. V. Uh, Dr. Christina Villarreal spent nearly a decade teaching and learning with the youth of East Oakland, where she taught middle school social studies and served as an assistant principal. Currently, she serves as the faculty director of the teacher education program um, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where she teaches ethnic studies um, and education courses to graduate students. She holds a BA in ethnic studies from UC Berkeley and master's of education from Harvard, a master's in ethnic studies from San Francisco State, and a master of philosophy and education from Columbia, where she also got her PhD. Yes, I think that's five degrees. If we're counting, I might have even missed one in there. Um, and her doctorate was in social studies education, um, of course, at Teachers College. Her research explores enactments of humanizing pedagogies, racial literacy, and racial healing, and radical healing, excuse me, in secondary social studies classrooms through portraiture. So she is a fascinating person, a scholar and a teacher, and we are excited to have her here with us today. Welcome, Dr. V, to All the Above. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Dr. V in the building. Thank you so much for taking time out to be here on All the Above with us. And, you know, obviously over the last six or so months, there's been this growing momentum towards decentering whiteness in education, in everything from the curriculum to teaching practices and teacher education. So we're wondering if we could start there and just ask you, what does it look like in your mind to decenter whiteness? Um, thanks. So once again, thank you, um, Jeff and Manuel, for for having me. Um, we all graduated from the same program at HGSE, and so we have that connection plus yeah. all the West Coast connections. Yeah. Um, so it's just an honor to be here um, with you all and hoping to also have a chance to connect with um, with your, your guests and your audience uh, following this episode if possible. Um, so yeah, in terms of decentering whiteness, I think it's really important to name that it isn't a recent um, momentum that we're talking about hundreds, I would say maybe recently it's been picked up by mainstream um, right. outlets in, in a little, right, more is because when we talk about decentering whiteness um, in the curriculum, you know, Carter G. Woodson um, was very clear um, in his work for to decenter whiteness, right, in the curriculum with like the textbooks that he created, for instance. Um, so in terms of, of just wanting to, to, for me, I guess in the work that I'm doing, I definitely see it as as one. I don't know. I'm a grain of sand, right? In in this many years, uh, hundreds of years, of struggles to decenter whiteness um, in education and curriculum, and that we've had the pendulum swing in terms of legislation. When we think about Brown v. Board, uh, all of those things are really important, and so part of it is ensuring like that there's opportunities to examine and interrogate those histories and how they have impacted what we see happening in classrooms. Um, what it looks like is being clear about the frameworks that I'm using um, when I'm working with teachers, whether it's through teacher education or ongoing trainings. Um, what are the books, right, that we're putting in front of them? Of course, you know, every place I'm gonna always plug um, this incredible text this guide by one of our yes. amazing, one of the most amazing North stars of our time, Dr. Bettina Love. Um, this is the first book that I put in the hands of uh, every teacher on the first day of orientation. 
um, for the teacher program in my first year uh, in the role. And that it isn't something right that lives in the mind that you actually have to then do that work. And so it actually, for instance, as a director, it isn't just then in the curriculum because I don't teach all of their classes. It means I'm intentional about who am I hiring, for instance, to supervise them and support them and mentor them in the field, um, to look into who have the mentors for this program um, historically been, because that's going to matter if they're reading about and working to develop right abolitionist curriculum um, and pedagogies, but they don't see that them being reflected in their schools, then are we actually doing the work of decentering whiteness? Um, so yeah, I think it's a, I think it needs to be like multi-pronged in terms of not just the readings or what we put on our syllabi, but to actually live, um, live and breathe that work in your everyday life to, to walk the talk, right? So to speak. Um, and, and that also looks like in admissions, who are we recruiting? Um, who are we encouraging to be teachers? From where are we recruiting? Um, has Harvard historically been intentional about recruiting from HBCUs? For instance, in terms of who's going to be teachers in classrooms so that they actually reflect the young people um, that, they're, that they're working with. So those are, are some ways. I don't know how long I should answer that question because we, we could probably spend the whole episode talking about different ways to, to decenter um, whiteness. But those are some of the initial ways I think about. Oh, fantastic. And for our listeners, anybody that's listening on the go, the book that she held up was uh, We Want to Do More Than Survive by uh, Dr. Bettina Love. And I guess a, a follow-up question for you uh, to that work of decentering whiteness. You know, uh, a lot of our students are going to, regardless of what community they came from, a lot of them are going to end up either in predominantly white institutions or predominantly white corporate um contexts and climates. So we're wondering, how do we really reconcile the work of decentering whiteness in the curriculum for our students, but also preparing them to, to survive and thrive in, in a world that still predominantly centers whiteness in the professional context and in um, the educational context? Thank you um, for asking that, because that actually comes up, obviously, a lot, right, um, in, in the work, in the work that all of us do. Um, I think it's really, really complex um, that it's not, there's not one way um, to do it well, especially when you are trying, if you are committed to the work of dismantling these systems while you're simultaneously working within them. Um, so I think first and foremost, it's important to be really clear always um, with, with your students. So this meant that for when I would teach, right? When I was teaching seventh and eighth grade, um, I think early on in my teaching, I was very much like, oh, forget these, these tests are so biased and they're so stupid. But recognizing that as if, if I'm committed, right, to the work of justice and that as long as those tests um, or exit exams, for instance, um, if as long as they are still part of the system and pathways and until we can get rid of them, then part of our work is to make sure that we're still preparing um, young people and or teachers, for instance, all the loopholes to become a teacher, to make sure that you are still, um, that they're still equipped um, to navigate the systems um, successfully, but not to do it without a critical consciousness um, and awareness about exactly what it is they're navigating and why. I think that that's like the important piece is, is having, um, being really clear and transparent 
about how problematic it is naming that um what it looks like is naming that that you know recognizing when you're dealing with something that is a clear manifestation and function of white supremacy um and that the work of being committed to dismantling it might mean that at times um you you are going to have to work within it um and uh for instance, in teacher ed, uh, this looks like the types of evaluations, right, that they're still held accountable for. Um, you know, we all went through, right, teacher programs, um, the, the DESE frameworks, and that, that sometimes things don't have to be all or nothing, that the ways in which we might evaluate those standards, you can do that through um, an abolitionist or cult and culturally sustaining lens. Um, so it's also right in the in the context and eye of the beholder, who's whoever's in that moment. Again, so that goes to why I'm intentional about who I hire to be those advisors, those field advisors, because they have to complete right that paperwork. Um, but how that paperwork is completed, right? I think that's like an example of of a more both and approach, and not you know forget it. We're not we're going to completely just ignore these systems, um, in which case none of my teachers would be certified. So it's a constant, I think, negotiation that requires us to be crystal clear, um, to have that political clarity about what we're doing, how we're doing it, and why we're doing it at any given moment. And that equipping um, teachers or young people with um, liberatory frameworks as they work to navigate and dismantle and hopefully then thrive, not within the systems, but within what they create in, in their place uh, is is the work that I hope to be engaged in. Mm. Wow, that's, it, you know, what's so fascinating as I'm listening to you talk, uh, Dr. V, is your, the kind of framing of that issue that you just named was really making me think about Lisa Delpit's uh, work in, in, in a classic now in, in other people's children. And uh, may, may, maybe you can write for us one day, you know, other, other people's adult children who are in graduate school uh, and, um, you know, explore the language of power and the codes of power uh, in, the, in the world of teacher ed. But um, really appreciate that, that framing there. And, and you are, you know, I think at, at your core, an educator who uh, you know, who grapples with issues of power and privilege um, in your pedagogy and in your in the content that you teach as as someone who's taught ethnic studies um, to teacher education candidates um, and to graduate students of education in, you know, the nation's, uh, you know, premier graduate school event. Um, although Manuel may beg to differ about that. But um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about, you know, what that experience is like teaching graduate students um, ethnic studies and what you see as like the role and the importance of ethnic studies in in graduate schools of education who are cultivating the, the next generation of educators. Um, wow. I, to teach, uh, I would say that 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 I don't take. The, the tremendous honor and privilege of getting to teach um, and learn um, and live and love in ethnic studies for granted. Um, ethnic studies both, I think, saved, but also gave and breathed purpose um, into my life. And so to have a chance um, to, to either introduce um, or help students continue that journey um, on 
and with ethnic studies, uh, I, I just, it's, it's a tremendous honor. Like that's how I describe um, the experience uh, in ter terms of, of what it is like. Uh, right now, there are 120 students enrolled in ethnic studies and education, the most we've ever had um, at, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, I teach four sections of it. It's incredible um, because the students this year, they're, they're not just pre-service teachers. Um, you get, I have everyone from um, future uh, principals, those that have been principals that are now becoming policymakers, uh, doctoral students. We have a few undergrads this year, um, folks that are in the arts and education program who are looking to shake up the museum world. So, um, then, it, then it's it's right. It, it's less about um, curriculum. That becomes for some of them that want the ones that do want to take this back into actual um, pre K to twelve classrooms. It looks a lot more um, like preparing folks to to orient them to the world and the lens of ethnic studies. And so it's really focused on equipping them um, with a lens uh, through which to view and then apply. Uh, in their work. So uh, the class begins um, with a comparative uh, body-centered study of some key events in U.S. history through that counter-narrative lens, um, right, which is the, the, the orientation and the approach um, of ethnic studies alongside a critical examination of our own biographies of education in thinking about not just what we learned, but how we learned it, and then importantly, why we learned about histories in these ways. Um, because studying history and ethnic studies is, is very different. It, it is very intentional. We're very intentional about centering um, the lives, um, the brilliance, the resistance, the resilience, um, and the joy of communities of color, um, especially as we have resisted um, systems of oppression, privilege, and power over time. And that isn't present in most, not even just graduate schools, it's not present in schools, that type of, of history, right? That type of learning. And so to do that with adults, it's a trip. I get a lot of, how come I never learned this? And, and I, don't, I don't have an answer. I'm like, you should be able to, you should, this class is designed for you to start to answer that question. Why? Why do you think you didn't learn this? Why were you just writing down dates or answering questions? Why was your AP history class like this? And then importantly, to not stop there. Great, now you're asking these questions. What does it compel you to do? Um, and so the, that's once we, we're now, we're literally in the middle of pivoting and we're now looking at the implications of racialization and racial formation theory and looking at, well, what has that, what has that done for myself, right, in my own body? Um, and the intergenerational trauma that I might be carrying uh, and how I navigate and navigate these, whether it's classrooms with young people who are also racialized beings, uh, to begin then to, to look at how can um, ethnic studies then frameworks and uh, approaches, so another book to plug, um, we use this text uh, to really think about how might I transform um, the curriculum, the pedagogy, and the practices um, to enact right ethnic studies um, frameworks uh, in my in my classroom or in my work as a school leader, and then we move from that. Uh, we we look at case studies, uh, so many of which 
are right there where you all are um, in LA. And uh, like we look at the work, uh, the incredible work that's been done at Roosevelt. Um, and, and we also look at examples of um, curriculum from, from Oakland, California, from Tucson, Arizona. And then I push students to think about, you're not gonna just take, right? You can't just lift what Leona and Roxy are doing in their classrooms because that's not, unless that's where you are, unless you are living in Boyle Heights, right? Or, or in East Oakland, you need to look at what does this look like in East Boston? What does this look like in Birmingham, Alabama? And that's, I think the, the, the gift of this year is, is my students are literally all over the world on Zoom tuning in. And so as we are asking these questions, I'm pushing them to ask and apply in their very everyday context, um, whether it's with the children that they're raising or the children that they're teaching um, or the adults that they're training and working with. What does this look like in your context? What, what, how has racialization played out? How does the history play out? Because if we look at, right, Leona Kwan's curriculum, and she has a unit on on the role of right racialized hierarchies during the gold rush era the gold rush um it's important but it's not as relevant in in say a boston context and so working with um those incredible teachers and and shouting out the the boston teachers union um, ethnic studies now um coalition that has been doing that work of building an incredible ninth grade curriculum that is so context specific. Um, that's what it looks like is, is, is me hopefully being a facilitator and guide um, towards activating um, the agency within all of these incredible educators, school leaders, policymakers to think about what does this look like um, for the specific places, the population with whom you are working and serving. Um, and, and, and if it's ethnic studies, then it is explicit about decentering whiteness, about humanizing um, historically targeted, marginalized, um, and assault right populations. Uh, it, is, it is making sure that every, every move that you make um, is, is in those humanizing ways. Nice. Now, there's a lot there that I definitely want to point out for folks who might be tuning in. And uh, first of all, the the book that Dr. V held up, Rethinking Ethnic Studies, uh, available through Rethinking Schools. We'll link that below. And I think it's a book that is applicable to uh, educators in all contexts, whether you teach ethnic studies or not. Um, um, lots of lots of dope stuff in there for sure. And um, if you heard her mention Roxy and you're like, who's Roxy? Uh, that would be Roxana Duenas, one of our guests in our second ever all of the above episode, which we might as well go ahead and link below this episode because uh, we explored ethnic studies and the work being done at Roosevelt High um, with Roxana Duenas, who's a super, super dope educator for sure. Now, um, Dr. V, you've had a, a really fascinating journey and to, to hear about the work that you're doing in teaching ethnic studies at the graduate level, you know, Jeff and I were both at that same university, Harvard Graduate School of Education, one year before you got there. And I got to say, I don't recall anything coming near that type of really critical work in terms of uh, the offerings of courses at the time when I was there. But I do know that, um, you know, my first, the first time I saw your name anywhere it was in an email that you sent when you were still uh, at Berkeley, finishing up there and asking about the program, the teacher education program at Harvard. And now fast forward to today, you've gone to, you know, teach in the 
um, well, obviously you ended up getting your master's in teaching at Harvard and you went back to the Bay and taught there and became assistant principal and, and continued to study and, and eventually got your PhD at Columbia. And now here you are back at the Harvard Graduate School of Education as the director of teacher education. So, you know, our listeners are, are in all different areas of their journey in education from teaching to, you know, whatever else they're doing as educators. So we're wondering if you could share with us a little bit about how has your journey through education impacted the work that you do today? Mm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, then, yeah, it would have to, I guess, um, start with being in my mommy's womb. <laughs> <laughs> um, that right being born, um, uh, a mixed race, right? I'm a woman of color. Um, I'm half half Chinese, half Mexican, um, born in the Bay, uh, the Gold Rush special, and um, <laughs> and I think growing up and attending schools um, for the majority of my life, where I did not see um, my history and the history of my ancestors reflected. Um, in the curriculum um, or in my teachers. Uh, and, and I think that's really right where maybe, I don't know, the questions or maybe the lack thereof, uh, that thinking about that part of my biography heavily impacts my work um, because I ask teachers now to think about their own educational biographies. Who were their teachers? When and how? What are the ways in which they their, their identities were affirmed or denied throughout their schooling experiences? Um, so I think about my own journey in that way a lot of sometimes, which a lot of teachers do, right? We, we often think about what didn't we get in schools, right? Um, you all named that even like what I teach now. I, I very much describe the ethnic studies class like that. I say, I'm teaching the class I never got to at the ed school. Um, and oftentimes as teachers, we are trying to uh, provide, even sometimes as parents, right? Trying to provide that which maybe we didn't get to have. And I think that's important to name. That informs both my own journey and what I'm trying to provide um, in the teacher program, in the ethnic studies classes, um, while also pushing um, teachers, school leaders to think about, you know, how is what you're doing influence by what you did or didn't get. And then it's also important to name when, and when are those moments, those pivotal moments in your journey when you, you're, when, when that fire was lit, when you began to feel affirmed and, and more human um, in your experiences. And for me, that was my 11th grade um, class, history class. Uh, Mr. Dwyer, uh, who still teaches, um, the, all the way up the coast from you all at Hayward High School, where I graduated from, class of two G's. And um, <laughs> that was the first time where I, I, felt, um, I felt affirmed, right, uh, and inspired, both by the curriculum, but also the type of teaching that I was, ex that I was experiencing. Um, that was where I took my first ethnic studies class um, was – um, was from Mr. Dwyer. And so that opened the doors and that's ultimately why I then went in. It was the first time he photocopied um, pages from a different mirror. Uh, I remember seeing that, right, uh, as, an 11th, as an 11th grader and then knowing, um, reading, right, then a history where I could place myself and my ancestors and, and having a clarity about going into college and knowing I wanted to major in ethnic studies. Um, and then having a chance um, to study 
under um, Ronald Takaki. Uh, and that heavily important. I mean, I held up the book because I'm holding up all the books that I'm, that I'm teaching now in the Epic Studies class um, because they have been instrumental parts of my journey. Um, so I think majoring in ethnic studies, for sure. Uh, I oftentimes say that, you know, um, Mr. Dwyer helped to kind of open the door to the Garden of Ethnic Studies, and I've never left. Um, and so having a chance then all the ways in which ethnic studies raised me from that moment, it literally informs every single move that I make um, in this work. And so it informs in terms of the content I teach, um, but also how I teach it. So everything from who is it that I, that I work to center um, and uplift um, in, in the curriculum, but also just even in the pedagogy, even in how I, I facilitate the space of the classroom and whose voices um, that, that, you know, that I work to even center, uh, again, not just in, in who I'm assigning on a syllabus, but also in, in who takes um, the class um, to ensure that it's a space where, where students um, can allow their full humanity um, to show up because that's what ethnic studies taught me. Um, and then I think that also informing the kind of teacher that I was, right, as a seventh and eighth grade teacher. And I say that part in terms of my journey, uh, that the most important teachers that I actually had in terms of my own, like the development of my teacher core, my pedagogical core, uh, the seventh and eighth graders that I worked with um, on 98th Avenue. And uh, that's where I learned. Um, I truly, I think, learned to be um, a teacher and it continues to inform. There is no greater source. Um, nothing informs and inspires my work more um, than the young people that I worked with. I keep in touch with a lot of them. They're, they're like in their 20s now. They're all grown up. They're having babies. And I think having a chance to, to continue to bear witness to their journeys, to be a part of their lives um, and just check in and even ask them, you know, for also advice. You know, they gave me advice then as I was learning how to be a teacher and they continue um, to inspire and inform um, my work now that shows up heavily. Uh, and I often say that seventh grade was my absolute favorite grade to teach. And so if you come into my classroom now, which is all virtual these days, I'm doing a lot of what I did as a seventh and eighth grade teacher and just enacting those, a lot of those uh, structures, those practices, those activities, I'm just remix, remixing them for um, a higher ed context. Because especially as I'm preparing future middle and high school teachers, you know, we often say to teachers, like, don't ever assign something that you're not willing to do yourself. Um, and so I think that uh, being able to model it um, in those ways uh, has also really informed uh, the work that I do. And then I think maybe finally, uh, I think my work as an assistant principal, if you look at kind of the timeline, uh, the trajectory of my work, that you'll see that me being planted in classrooms is the most consistent because I do. I say it all the time. I'm the most alive when I'm in a classroom, whether it's as an actual teacher, um, as as a coach, right, uh, as a facilitator. All of those is where I feel the most alive. And, and I got to do some of that, but I think not enough of that as an assistant principal. And I remember missing it so much that I even taught a 12th grade ethnic studies class during sixth period. Um, but it was actually my work 
it was it was coaching um, as an assistant principal that inspired me to go into teacher ed because in talking to a lot of teachers and working with them, I was, I became frustrated because I felt like I was arriving to the party late. Uh, I, I felt like they were coming into the castle unprepared, um, not, not unprepared in terms of their heart. They wanted to do the work, but the more I heard about um, their preparation programs and what they were and were not reading, uh, it deeply concerned me. And I realized I gotta get to them before I, I got to get to them before they get to the classrooms, before they come into our communities. Um, so that is what propelled me to, you know, when I talk to my, um, my mentors, right. Dr. Sean Jinright, he's like, well, V, you got to get a PhD. I was like, damn, I want to, I want to, I just want to teach. Um, so that is what brought me then to the East coast with all those pieces of the stories with ethnic studies, with my own biography, with my own, um, years of teaching uh, in Oakland, I carry all, that is literally with me all the time. I think a lot about um, Dr. Maya Angelou's quote, right? I come as one, but I stand as 10,000. It is running through my veins in every East Coast space that I've been through. Um, the time that I spent in New York, then in Providence at Brown, and now um, at, at Harvard, that all of those, those parts of my journey um, show up, I think, very intensely uh, in every single space um, that that I walk uh, or zoom uh, into, and they, uh, I think that they just, um, I don't know, they show up in different ways depending on on what I'm doing, whether I'm teaching um, or coaching or running a workshop. Um, so those yeah. are, yeah, those are some of the ways my journey shows up. Well, I appreciate that. That's a, a beautiful telling of, of your story and your journey. And um, also a good segue into our, our final question here, um, which is, you know, we're we're living in this time where everything in education feels like it's been turned upside down. And, you know, so many of the things that perhaps uh, even months or weeks ago seemed impossible um, now are on the table, right? Uh, or now are the norm uh, for how we conduct our, our profession. And I'm wondering if you could share uh, just some, some parting wisdom, some parting words of advice to, uh, to the next generation of educators or even perhaps the current educators um, about how to kind of seize on this moment of transformation that we are all living through. Um, thank you. I think uh, first and foremost, um, I think it's so important to to name um, and sit with and honor um, the very real fact that we are navigating um, a, a collective trauma. Uh, that I think is really important because as we continue um, to push ourselves and to, to navigate this moment, um, that it is having an impact on our minds and our bodies and our hearts. And so I think that I'm hoping that part of this moment reminds us uh, of the importance of centering healing in, in the everyday work of schools for ourselves and especially for, for the young people um, that, that you might be working with. Uh, that will give me a chance to plug one more resource um, another uh, text that really informs, but that actually operates um, as very much a workbook with body-centered practices in terms of the racialized trauma uh, that we are, right, collectively also experiencing. Um, 
and to recognize that this is a moment where it's important um, to make sure that we're centering that and to recognize how it's showing up in our bodies. How is white supremacy showing up in your bodies? When is it the voice of white supremacy that is often disguised as your voice um, telling you what is or is not possible in this moment? Uh, I think that is very important. I think that we're offered an opportunity um, in this moment to really sit with that and and look at what it compels us to do. Um, The other piece that I want to name is, is that this is a moment to be very clear on what we refuse to go back to. I hear a lot of like, oh, well, when we go back, go back to what? Because what it was before was hella problematic. And it wasn't in the best interest of us or the young people that we are here to serve, um, period, um, the, the end. And so what, what can we use this moment to demand? Again, as I say that, I recognize that that is incredibly, that is dirty, messy, painful, difficult work, which is why, right, I started with making sure all this as much as possible um, is is prepared um, for that struggle in our fight because we are seeing, we are seeing so clearly the ways in which white supremacy is, is fighting hard to stay alive to sink its teeth and claws into this moment to stop um, opportunities to, to, see, to, to actually treat this moment as the portal, right, that, that Arundhati Roy has talked about. How can we actually manifest that and make it a reality? And it's never one person, right? It's, it's each of us as individuals working in solidarity because solidarity is a verb. And so what does it look like to exercise solidarity in this moment to ensure that what, it, that what we can possibly create in place of what was before um, actually humanizes and honors the shared humanity of every single person in every space um, that we occupy, that we share, um, and, 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 that, and that it's into, through, and beyond the curriculum, the pedagogy, the practices, the policies. And so that's what I'm saying. It's not going to be like just the teachers or just the leaders or just, it's, it's all of us working um, collectively and in solidarity. So that's, that's one of my, my hopes um, for this painful um, moment, this transition that, that we're all struggling and navigating through. Yeah, well, That's thank beautiful. you so much, Dr. V, for, for joining us today. I think um, it's, it's going to, when we go back and watch this episode, I think there's so many gems in there. I'm, you know, I know personally, at least, I'm going to have to uh, revisit and unpack. And um, just want to um, also give you a shout out for bringing your books with you today. I, yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. Um, I think it's, you know, not only good reference material for, uh, for folks um, out there watching and, and listening, but also... Uh, I think speaks to you know to you keeping keeping your values close to you uh, in the work. So I appreciate and, and respect that. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right, folks. That about does it for this episode's seminar. Up next is our class dismissed. Stay tuned. What up, AOTA family? 
If you're not already following us on social media, man, what are you doing? We're available on Twitter, at AOTA Show, and on Facebook, also, at AOTA Show. And we've been putting up extras, including exit tickets. Exit tickets are short videos with our guests where we ask them about a few of their favorite things. Of course, we also put up links and, and, and articles and stories related to the world of education. So definitely, if you're not already, please consider following us on social media and spreading the word. Now back to the show. All right, folks, we've come to that time in the episode that is our class dismissed. It's where we like to take just a couple minutes to give a shout out to someone or some entity out there doing great work in the field of education. Manuel, who we got today? Man, we got we got a pretty dope story today, um, especially considering what we discussed during the Do Now about how many students um, are experiencing homelessness. And especially at the community college level, uh, you know, financial struggles are, are really, really tough on students. And this story pertains to a record-setting donation to California community college uh, colleges that, that we definitely want to discuss and, and shout out. So the Jay Pritzker Foundation recently made an unprecedented donation which is a 20-year, $100 million pledge to provide scholarships to California students facing unexpected financial hardships. This is the largest ever donation to a community college system in the whole country. And in the first year of this 20-year pledge, 34 community colleges in, in regions of California with the lowest percentages of adults who have attained any level of a college degree, those colleges will receive $150,000 each in this first year. And the um, president of the foundation, who's um, the president of the J. Pritzker Foundation, Dan Pritzker, uh, says that he and his wife were um, really focused on improving education globally and were really inspired by President Obama's efforts to promote community colleges nationally. And the president of the Foundation of Community of California Community Colleges, um, Keitha Mills, said the don donation would help keep students enrolled by addressing the immediate financial needs that could prevent them from delaying their academic goals. So looks like some assistance is coming to these California community colleges that have students who are really struggling financially. And, you know, $100 million, Jeff, that's that's pretty substantial, I think. It's a lot of dough, man. Well, you know, it's not uh, it's not a change you find in the couch. Um, yeah, you know, look, I think this is a this is a good thing. The reality is our community colleges have not gotten the type of investment that they need in order to serve uh, you know, oftentimes the most vulnerable parts of our community, right? And so I think it's, it's high time we had major investment in the success of students in our community colleges because we know there's huge obstacles um, in students' way in terms of finishing their degrees after they start. So uh, props to the Pritzker Foundation and, you know, good luck to the many thousands of students who are going to uh, hopefully benefit from, their, from this donation. Indeed, indeed. All right, folks, that about does it for this episode of All of the Above. Definitely leave us a review if you enjoyed what you saw or what you listened to. All right, we'll see you later, folks. <laughs>